Information Wants to be Free has been attributed to Stuart Brand, the editor of the Whole Earth Catalog, which was primarily published in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and which influenced a whole lot of technologists and thinkers operating out of California in particular at the time, promoting ideas about self-sufficiency and ecological concerns and a sort of DIY do-it-yourself ethic, which jibed with the hippie-influenced, at times, techno-spiritualistic philosophy that was popular out there at that moment, and which also went on to inform a great deal of the ideological underpinnings of the modern tech world. One such cluster of considerations relates to intellectual property. At the beginning of the microprocessor revolution, which we're still living in now, an age that is defined in many ways by the pervasive technologies that have helped create the digital world, our always-on communication channels, the countless new entertainment mediums and creative tools and surveillance capabilities we enjoy and leverage, there was a concern as all this was being imagined and predicted and built the superstructure of it was being built at least, that we could accidentally push ourselves into a more authoritarian, invasive, abusive, and unequal state if we're not careful. Because just as these tools could be used to liberate people and free our minds and bodies in ways previously unimagined, it was also possible these tools could be used for the opposite instead, for oppression and the reinforcement of existing socially and economically and spiritually stratifying structures. So information wants to be free was in some ways a statement about how we as a species would soon have the ability to generate more, learn more, do more than ever before. And we have to choose whether to lock down all the fruits of this amplification of our capabilities or whether we would share it, use those fruits to augment the human species rather than just increasing the valuation of a few companies and the bank accounts of folks who are already wealthy and in the position to take advantage of these tools in this way. Interestingly, while Brand popularized this phrase, by saying it during a conversation with Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak at a hacker conference in 1984, it was probably coined earlier in its modern incarnation in the late 1950s, possibly by a well-known member of the Tech Model Railroad Club at MIT, maybe sometime in 1959. And notably, this group was a precursor to other influential engineering clubs and companies, which went on to build out fundamental components of the aforementioned microprocessor revolution. So this idea had been floating around this space for decades before Brand made it famous. Also interesting is that Brand's more complete comment on this concept is a bit more gray-toned rather than black and white, about information and how it should be distributed or made available. From an email Brand wrote to clarify his statement back in 1999, quote, In fall 1984, 
at the first hackers conference, I said in one discussion session, on the one hand, information wants to be expensive because it's so valuable. The right information in the right place just changes your life. On the other hand, information wants to be free because the cost of getting it out is getting lower and lower all the time. So you have these two fighting against each other, end quote. This, of course, complicates matters a bit because it brings up the arguably good point that while these technological wonders we have at hand today and which in his day were being developed allow us to produce information, whether we're talking about books or research or instruction manuals or whatever else, we can produce this stuff increasingly inexpensively and share it for essentially zero cost. And by that logic, it makes sense to make this information as broadly available as possible because that could do a lot of good and reduce the gap between the haves and the have-nots throughout society. On the other hand, information wants to be expensive because it can be costly to produce. Doing research, for instance, can be very expensive, as can writing a book or working up a how-to guide. The time required to make the guide, but also the time required to accumulate the knowledge to be capable of making it, not being free for the author of the guide. Because of this, information arguably should be expensive if we value it and want more of it to be made. If we make all information free, in other words, it could result in less information of all sorts being produced because those who might otherwise make such things would have no financial incentive to do so. And under our current system of economics, you need money to pay for things. And lacking financial compensation, folks who were not independently wealthy would have to take on other paying work, which would lead to less information being created and shared, except by a very economically privileged upper class. The opposite, though, can also lead to less information being available for most people because when we slap price tags and paywalls on everything, we reduce the average person's ability to access a great deal of what's already been learned and created. We, as a society, then have to keep relearning things because the evidence of our having learned and the information that passes on those learnings to others are not equally distributed. So this state of affairs, arguably, slows us down as a species almost as much as not generating this information to begin with. What I'd like to talk about today is information, how it's distributed, and the conflict between these two dissemination-related perspectives. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. In most modern societies, a certain amount of information is available without cost for all. This is generally considered to be a smart investment in a public good, as information about dangers and preventative measures can save lives, while information about regulations and laws can help keep society ticking along with less confusion and damage and unintentional rule-breaking. Post-Enlightenment era, so in the 17th and 18th centuries, around Europe in particular, libraries began to spring up, and while they were originally predicated on subscriptions that would be paid mostly by upperclassmen with the resources to afford access to such spaces, not to mention the free time 
required to read books, and the literacy required to parse what was contained in those books. This model eventually became more widespread and socially dispersed, starting with resource libraries for tradesmen, where they could learn more about what they needed to know to be better masons or sailors or whatever else, and then with the slow shift toward publicly funded general lending libraries. Most earlier libraries required that you stay on site to read the books, which were often either guarded or chained to shelves or desks to prevent their theft. But eventually, books became inexpensive enough and perceptually more valuable to the average person for entertainment or education that a few local libraries in England and then across the early United States began to pop up, opting for a lending model on the theory that a more educated populace was valuable for economic purposes and because it would allow burgeoning democracies to operate more smoothly. You need to know things to have a sense of what's happening in the world if you're going to do your civic duty and help the government function. Variations on this model have existed around the world from the beginning of time, though, and while in some cases libraries of information were similar to modern libraries, places containing books or scrolls or tablets or other sorts of written information that could be consumed on site or taken home and returned later. Other, earlier pseudo-libraries took the shape of rituals or people who would share what they knew with the next generation or would teach important lessons or trades and knowledge to those who were thought to need it because of where they were in life, because they were about to start an apprenticeship, or because of the role that they were meant to play in their society. So the accumulation and distribution of information for free isn't a new modern concept. Like with most things, we do it somewhat differently now because we have technologies, as was predicted by those early microprocessor theorists and innovators, which allow us to compile and share information in ways unimagined by our ancestors at a cost in time and effort and other resources that's barely noticeable in some cases. We've achieved unheard of scale and often economies of scale. But the overall theory of information being available to everyone for nothing is something that's been with us from the very beginning of recorded history. Now that said, with the advent of modern economics, we've seen the birth of other information generation and distribution models. And in some cases, these models seem to stimulate the same benefits found under free models, but faster, in greater quantity, and by some metrics at least of a higher quality because of the incentives at play. Basically, that we need money to both survive and thrive, by most measures and in most places. And if you can create more or better work, you may be paid for that work. I'd like to unspool three recent stories that relate to different facets of this larger conversation, as I think they do a pretty good job of rounding out the discussion, while also further illustrating the conflicts inherent in the forces at play. The first comes from Nature, and it's entitled Massive Open Index of Scholarly Papers Launches. This piece focuses on a new free online index called Open Alex, which is named after the ancient Library of Alexandria in Egypt, and which is meant to help show connections between the 200 million scientific documents 
it contains. There are several other platforms that offer a similar service, basically aggregating existing research and papers and books and using software to find connections and maybe connections between these things, which can help with future research but also provides a more complete, stable foundation for scientific and other fact-based mullings on a variety of topics. This is information derived from existing information then, and that new information would not be possible without the raw materials, those 200 million scientific documents from which it is deriving this new meaning. What makes this new index somewhat unique is that it provides this service for free. Other similar platforms like Scopus and Dimensions and the now discontinued Web of Science also make or made these sorts of connections and leverage an existing body of work to do so. But OpenAlex makes a similar service available for free so that anyone, not just folks who can afford a subscription, are able to utilize said derivative insights and check out all that existing documentation without needing to pay a cent. This new platform was built in the wake of the aforementioned Web of Science platform's closing. A nonprofit called Our Research, operating out of Vancouver, Canada, used part of a $4.5 million grant they received from a charity called Arcadia Fund, which is based out of London in the UK, to do the work required to get a basic version of this site up and running with a more complete and intuitive interface to access the accumulated research and derivative insights planned to go live in February. 2022. Further, some of OpenAlex's infrastructural costs are being covered by Amazon Web Services, or AWS, which allows them to offer access to this index for free under a Creative Commons copyright license, which in turn allows the work to be built upon by others, potentially leading to more and more useful stuff in the future, all constructed atop the same raw materials. And they're able to do so without requiring registration or login information. By most metrics, then, this new project is superior to the other offerings and to the previously available web of science that it replaces. But, and this is a big but, to make this new approach happen required a large quantity of financial resources, millions of dollars, from organizations willing to commit those resources to this purpose rather than all the other, arguably equally, by some metrics and to some people, important projects they could have instead funded. And it required the support of one of the biggest companies in the world, Amazon, to keep things running and to allow them to offer all this information up in the friction-free way they're offering it. So there's an underlying tension here between the ideal of making this sort of information free and easy to access, and useful in the way it seems like it will be, and the need to have money-making infrastructure providing the resources for the platform, for the services required to keep it going month to month, and for the model that allows people to access this stuff without having to provide their data to some entity that would likely use it to make money somehow. Not to mention all the funding and labor that went into generating those 200 million documents. While it's possible for stuff to be made available for free, then, in many cases, under our current nearly ubiquitous global economic system, the seemingly free is often 
actually just the tip of an iceberg made up of a lot of not-free effort that culminates with a commonly available, accessible, often beloved resource. The same is true, of course, of libraries, which are often paid for with tax dollars and other bits of infrastructure we often take for granted, not seeing the economic realities that make them a thing, and thus not necessarily seeing them as the consequence of capitalistic forces. The second piece I'd like to unspool today comes from Hyperallergic, and it's entitled Celebrate Public Domain Day with works by Kafka, Hemingway, and Zora Neale Hurston. Public Domain Day is an annual observance of new work entering the public domain after its period of copyright protection has expired. This will mean different things in different countries, as copyright law varies from nation to nation. But in general, when I create something, I then have some kind of copyright-protected ownership over that thing. Copyright protection means I have the exclusive legal right to copy and sell and distribute in other ways without selling, if I choose, that thing, with some exceptions, like fair use, which protects satire and commentary and things like that, for a period of time, which varies from place to place. So if I write a book here in the U.S., I own the rights to that book, including the right to make or sell the right to make derivative works, like TV shows or movies based on that book, until I die. And then my estate, my family, or whomever inherits the copyrights to my work, retains that copyright for another 70 years after my death. The duration of copyright and the rights afforded to copyright holders vary from place to place. And depending on when the works were created, as a lot of laws have been passed which change that duration, in some cases for all work, and in some cases just for work in specific mediums, created before a certain date. What's important to know for the purposes of this discussion, though, is that when something leaves copyright, when it's no longer protected in this way, it enters the public domain. And this is another concept that varies in specifics, depending on where you are in the world. But generally, when a work is in the public domain, that means the public, everyone, can use this work however they like, riffing on and remixing and reimagining the characters in a book, using music samples in their own music, republishing new versions of a script or a novel. It's all up for grabs and it's all free. In 2022, Public Domain Day was considered to be an especially bountiful one because quite a few modern works of renown, like the original non-Disney cartoon version of Winnie the Pooh, some of Franz Kafka's writings, and a bunch of poetry and music from the 1920s all came into the public domain. So in practice, that means these works, these characters, these melodies and recordings are now usable by anyone, as if those copyrights never existed. And according to some research that's been done on this topic, introducing new raw materials of this kind into the public free pile tends to result in waves of new creations, new innovation, and basically a bunch of positive net effects creatively and economically for society. While the initial creation of such works tend to be sparked by financial incentives then, the introduction of previously protected works into the public sphere tends to result in slower burning but large, measurable positive effects for society in general. 
And sometimes that means a new TV series based on old characters, which brings a lot of joy to a lot of people, alongside the creation of new revenues for those who made this new TV series, while in other cases it means the creation of new art, music, or explorations of concepts and ideas previously protected by copyright and thus not explorable, or in some cases even available, in the same way previously. And the final piece I'd like to look at today comes from Tech Dirt, and it's entitled SciHub's Creator Thinks Academic Publishers, Not Her Sight, Are the Real Threat to Science, and says, quote, any law against knowledge is fundamentally unjust, end quote. SciHub is a well-known, either beloved or despised website, depending on who you are, which provides free access to millions of papers and publications that are typically protected by paywalls and copyright. The world of research and modern science as a whole is predicated on a lot of commonly available free information, but much of the nuts and bolts stuff is not free to access and is often protected by the journals that publish this kind of work. The argument from the journal's perspective is that they spend a lot of time vetting and editing and disseminating these works, so the one-time payout to access a research paper or a book in their catalog, or the subscriptions that individuals and businesses and entities pay to access their whole catalog, kind of like a super expensive Netflix, is justified. They need it to do the work they do and to keep their standards high. There are free alternatives to such journals, and they're gaining each year in terms of exposure and prestige, but there are still social, professional, and exposure-related benefits to publishing one's work in a better vetted, more traditional, more mainstream, and expensive journal, rather than going with one of these free-to-access publications that sometimes, just perceptually, but also often practically, don't have the same filters and checks in place when they're assessing what to publish and what not to publish. SciHub, at its most fundamental, is something like a Pirate Bay or Napster, back when Napster was an illegal free music service. All of that but for research. You can go to SciHub and access all the stuff that you would otherwise pay hundreds of dollars for behind these scientific journals' paywalls, and you can do it for free. SciHub, then, and another similar service called LibGen, which is the same concept but for all sorts of books and publications, not just scientific work, are not exactly beloved by journals and other publishers. In fact, they've repeatedly been shut down, their operators pursued by law enforcement, and lawsuits have been slung by all sorts of entities against the often ragtag group of people, usually but not always technologists and or folks who work in the spaces served by these publishing platforms, who keep the lights on and who keep moving the domain name for these services when one of them is shut down by law enforcement or other similar entities. The argument leveled by these publications, both in legal documents and in statements made to the public and press about these matters, is that what they do is important and expensive. They can't do all that fact-checking and editing and publishing without making the money they make. So these acts of digital piracy, over time, serves to reduce the quality of work available. The counter-argument 
is that these companies and other entities which publish such works are making money hand over fist, way more money than is justified by the services they provide, and consequently, they are just rent-seeking, putting themselves between creators of work and those who want to consume that work and soaking up most of the profits, the financial gains, for themselves, claiming they are a necessary intermediary, but actually making the experience worse for everyone involved and more expensive than it needs to be, creating a cost and a barrier to entry where there needn't be cost nor barrier. What this conflict really comes down to, at its most essential, is whether intellectual property should be honored no matter what because of the benefits it provides in the short term to a relative few and in the long term to everyone once the copyright on such work runs out, or whether such work should belong to everyone from the beginning, even in cases where the financial incentives at play are theoretically responsible for at least some of the quality of that work and perhaps the creation of it to begin with, as well. This conversation is likely to continue, but in the meantime, the existence of these and similar piracy services serve as an uncomfortable and illegal means of bypassing these types of copyrights. With a little work and knowledge, there are few informational and digital things you can't get for free if you have the right device and internet connection. But the question is, should that be the way things operate? How might the services and entities involved rebalance this equation? And how might all sides of this discussion accidentally do more harm than good, despite trying, to the best of their ability, to do good? Now, it's possible that we'll figure out ways around this issue without ever having to solve this specific problem by shifting toward a new economic model, perhaps less or not at all predicated on scarcity. But in the meantime, it seems likely that such workarounds will remain common as a means of rebalancing what some people perceive to be an unbalanced, in favor of those with the most resources, informational dynamic. book I'd like to recommend today is called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor. This was one of several books I read about breathing within just a couple of weeks, and it led to a few adjustments in the way I was doing things, not because I was doing anything terrible, but because there does seem to be some new research on the difference between mouth and nose breathing, the potential benefits of at least experimenting with some old-school breathing practices, and essentially the role that breathing plays in regulating many other bodily systems. And this information is presented in the context of the author's own experiences and experimentation and education about all of these things. So it's a pretty easy read, but it contains a great deal of potentially actionable information if this is a realm of inquiry you're looking to learn more about and potentially integrate into your life and habits in some way. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. 
You can check out and support, if you care to, all of my work at understandery.com, and feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, at Colin is my name, on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube, and I've been experimenting a bit with live streaming, including on those services I just mentioned, but also on Twitch, where I can be found at Virtual Colin, if you're keen to check out some of that experimentation. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.